what we are about to do, the time that we're going to take now to enter into the Word of God is a big, big deal. It's a big deal because we are invited into a space where God is going to call us into a unique freedom. There is a poem written by a man named John Donne, one of my favorite poems. It's called Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. And the very last two lines of the poem says, uh, Never shall I be free lest you imprison me. Never chaste or pure lest you ravage me or violate me. It is an incredible dynamic that God invites us to be imprisoned by Him, to be, to be violated by Him so that we would be free and pure. And that's what we're about to do. Enter into a space where we are invited to be imprisoned by God, invited to be violated by God so that we may be free and pure. Let's just ask God to do that as we step in. God, would you come now and imprison us with your word and violate our souls with your word so that we might be free and so that we might be pure. Amen. As uh, some of you may know, if you follow uh, either myself or my wife on Facebook, uh, we just arrived back last night at 11 p.m. from a week-long vacation, <laughs> vacation, uh, week-long trip uh, to uh, the Washington, D.C. area to kind of do that, you know, that thing that you do with your kids where you, uh, you do the D.C. thing and you go to all the monuments and the museums and, the, and, and, and all the stuff. And, and on that trip, we uh, drove over 2,000 miles. We were in the car over 40 hours. It clocked it, actually. So we spent a work week in the car this week. We walked, according to my son's little stepper watch, over 40 miles as a family through D.C. and museums, the Guinness Book of Records for reasons to, to complain, right? Uh, so we went on this vacation, and if you follow Facebook, uh, you will see the incredible power that Facebook has to lie to you, because all the pictures on Facebook, we're standing uh, happily in front of monuments and museums with beautiful smiles on our faces, comments down, oh my gosh, looks like you guys are having so much fun. I wish I could put onto Facebook what it took to get those pictures. I wish I could post that, but it would be wholly inappropriate, and there would be no comments. There would only be lots of concerns. So, um, here's the deal. It actually went a lot better than I ever expected it to go, and our kids were amazing on this trip. But I will tell you that in order to make it through this trip, uh, it took a tremendous amount of constant management of children. We're in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're walking through streets in D.C. to get to monuments and then walking around monuments. And in Washington, D.C., uh, drivers are trying to get from one point to another, and they are in a hurry. And driving over a small child on the way there is really a total irrelevancy to most of them. So you have to make sure that as you're walking through the streets that you keep the children safe from these drivers. Uh, also, it turns out all these monuments and museums seem very important to the American people, and so uh, they also seem very important to the police. So if you climb on them or you break stuff in them, that does not go well for you either. So we know that, and so what we have to do is make sure that our children uh, stay where they need to stay, don't touch what they need not to touch, do not run into streets where they need to run into. And so what that requires when you have eight kids like I do is a constant elevation of tone and voice and a litany of threats that are significant enough 
to defy the logic they have to cross that road before I tell them they can. And so it was a week long of a fair amount of, no, no, let's if you If you climb, I swear to you, it'll be over for your life. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff went on a lot. Now, right afterwards, it's a quick recovery because I'm not actually necessarily angry. It is a necessary part of managing that world. I actually had a dream toward the end of the week, no joke. Uh, I was sleeping in the, in the last hotel with the boys, and Brooke was in another room with the girls, and, and, and I, was, I fell asleep, and I had this dream of my eight-year-old son. Uh, we were on a very, very, very high building, kind of that kind of high building where you look over the edge and everything in you screams, why are you here? If you fall, you don't die, you definitely die, right? I mean, that kind of height. And there was scaffolding all over the top of the building, sort of peeking over the edges, and my eight-year-old, no joke, was swinging on the scaffolding, launching back and forth between scaffolding over the, the, the death plummet. And so I'm standing far enough back, I'm trying to work my way through the scaffolding to get to him because he's absolutely insane, and I know he's, he's going to slip and fall to his death, and so I'm shouting, don't swing on that, it's, it's dangerous. If you, if you jump from there to there, I swear, I mean, literally I can hear myself screaming these things, and he looks at me, and he smiles, and he launches himself across to the next scaffolding, and he misses it, and he falls down, 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 down toward his death. Now, I cannot begin to describe to you, I distinctly remember in my dream, the feeling I had when he missed that scaffolding. Now, by God's grace, this is no joke, I'm watching and I'm like haunted by what I'm about to see, and he lands on his feet and bounces like a little monkey and, and, and runs off. And I'm like, that's not, that's when I knew it was probably a dream. And, and what I realized is that that moment was God's grace in teaching me a lesson that he could have left me with a haunted experience there that he spared me from. And just a side note, often when God is teaching us something, he spares us from the worst of it. I would have been haunted very differently if I'd watched what I thought I was going to watch. But I'm not going to tell my son that he didn't die because the lesson is also for him, right? I don't want him to know he lived because that would be a bad lesson. Uh, the, the idea here uh, is that I realized as I woke from the dream, and I'm like, God, what on earth? I, I, I realized uh, that this was an incredible uh, moment of, of recognition that we human beings as children have an incredibly difficult time listening to those in authority over us or those placed over us because it defies our own logic. It defies what makes sense to us. When an adult is telling you, here's what you cannot do or here's what you must do, there is a logic inside our brain that says, why would they tell me that? This is awesome. They don't know what they're talking about. And so there is a moment in time when you are listening to someone in authority over you that you must look at your own logic and it, you must allow it to be defied and you must believe that what you cannot see, cannot know, cannot understand, have not yet experienced is actually better because of the person telling you. And that is next to impossible for a human being. And so I realized that it is very difficult to just listen to authority. But I also realized that when we don't, when we don't buy into the people that are speaking into our lives, that are an authority over us, that love us and care about us, the only next step we have is to live under a constant litany of threats and shouts and consequences. 
Because then what you're doing is you're saying, I know you logically think running across that street right now is a good idea. And because me simply telling you not to is not going to work, what I'll do is I'll create a threat so large that that logic overrides the other logic. Where you go, I'm going to miss out on running across the street, but then I'm going to lose dessert for a lifetime. I'm going to run with stopping by the street. So this is how we live as human beings. We live in this space where constantly what we see around us immediately, what we experience must be violated when someone that knows more than we do, understands more than we do, sees more than we do, tells us something that defies what's right in front of us. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. We have the privilege of sitting with him at the desk right now in Corinth as he's penning this letter to send to them, and we are watching as it's being written, learning from what he's telling them. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica to commend them to celebrate the incredible lives that they are living in faithfulness. In other words, they are living their lives full of faith or full of belief. They believed what the gospel said, what God said, what God taught, and now they are expressing that out and what is being born out of them is a life of faithfulness. And that life of faithfulness is having dramatic impact on them, on those around them, on the gospel, on the kingdom of God. So Paul is writing to commend them because living a life of faithfulness is difficult. It's very hard. That's why so few do it, because it's very difficult. And when somebody's doing it, Paul writes and he commends them and he says, oh, my, I'm so excited to watch your lives play out the way they are. is incredible. We have traveled through this letter extracting now the principles that led these guys to this kind of life full of faith, right? Because what Paul is doing is he's showing them sequentially why they are living this life, how that came about, and also in so doing, challenging them to continue to live it. So our benefit is that we get to watch the why, see that as a challenge and an invitation, and go, oh, if I step into the same things they did, then what will be born in me is probably, very probably, a life expressed outwardly of inward belief, a life of faithfulness, which will result in the same incredible things we are seeing commended in this letter. So Paul is writing to them saying, well done, this is why it's happening, keep it up. And we are getting to extract that. We've journeyed so far through several important things that this life of faithfulness, a life born in us, this outward expression, it matters. It matters a great deal. It matters to your freedom. It matters to those around you. It matters to the gospel. It matters to the kingdom of God. It matters to Jesus. It matters to mission. It's a big deal. This is not something we should take lightly. We also know that this life of faithfulness is not a message we carry. It is a life we live, right? We, we explored the reality that this is, this is what is now inside us and what comes out. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And the life we now live, we live by faith, by belief, by what we know to be true. And that's our outward expression. A life of faithfulness is your whole life and everything that happens. And that's what we are after. That's what we're exploring. We also journeyed into the fact that the life of faithfulness doesn't simply happen in the walls of a church. It doesn't just happen when you're here. Come here, dress up, be faithful. Go out there, be normal. 
No, in fact, everywhere you go out there to do the work that you do, whether it's the work in your home and your family, the work in managing that world of home and family, the work in your neighborhood, the work in your uh, social networks, the work in your workplace, wherever you find yourself working, this is where your life unfolds in Christ. So a life of faithfulness is one consumed by God and living out in every arena. As Paul continues to write, he is about to lay a foundation for us this particular weekend as we explore with him that is going to give us a clue into how we begin to walk in this life full of belief in extraordinary ways and how, in some ways, how simple it is to continue consistently in that space, though difficult because it violates a lot of who we are, but calls us into an incredible space. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the first letter he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It's on page 640 of the Bibles we provided at the door on your way in if you grabbed one of those. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, if you're using a smart device or your own Bible, uh, and page... Uh, 640 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided. So here's what he says. Now listen to what Paul says. Again, remember Paul is setting up a premise here in this first part of Thessalonians that part of the reason why the people in Thessalonica are living the lives they are is because Paul and his entourage came living the lives that they are now living. So this is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul begins by saying, I want you to know that the the motive, the reality, the reason that we came to you in Thessalonica and were able to preach with such boldness and live our lives with such boldness is because the gospel was entrusted to us by God. See, he starts with the idea in Philippi that despite the persecution in Philippi, we still came, we still preached boldly, we still lived boldly. Why would he say that? See, what Paul's trying to demonstrate here is that there really is no advantage to him and his group to come and preach the gospel in Thessalonica after he was in Philippi. He comes into Macedonia, he goes to Philippi, he preaches the gospel boldly, he gets beaten, he gets arrested, he gets put in stocks, and he almost gets put to death, minus being a Roman citizen that gets him out of it. So Paul goes through massive persecution there. Logically, if you say, my first experience in Macedonia and the first city I get to is to preach the gospel and almost die for it and suffer greatly, what do you do at the next city? Well, you sit very quietly, write a letter, leave it in a secret place, and leave the city. They can arrest the letter when they read it. (laughs) What you don't do is you don't walk into the city and with equal boldness and uh, in public places declare the gospel. And yet Paul says, oh, you see, despite the persecution in Philippi, despite the suffering we went through, what did we do when we showed up in your place? We just as boldly and unapologetically preached the gospel, lived the gospel, and oh yes, we were equally persecuted for the gospel in Thessalonica because of you. Why did they do that? See, Paul gives us the answer. He says we did that because this gospel that we are preaching 
We don't bring to you to try to deceive or convince you so that we would have advantage. We bring it to you. Why? Because God entrusted the gospel to us. See, we know where it came from. We know who gave it to us. We know why we have it, and it's not for us. It's not so we can live a better life and have advantage and bring you nice messages. Walking into a cultural context that has massive amounts of idols, that has a deep sense of their cultural nuances, they don't want to hear anything that violates that. Walking into that culture and basically violating everything the people love is not a good idea. Except for what? That this gospel is from God, and it was given to us by God. And it is his gospel we carry. And so I want you to know when I came to you, I came to you with equal passion despite persecution because of who gave me this gospel. The gospel is from God. This is why I carry it. This is why I preach it. This is why I live it. Because I know who gave it to me. And that's what I bring. Now look what he does. What Paul does now beautifully is he demonstrates how the life he is living as a result of what he's received is also translating into the lives of the Thessalonians. Now take a look in chapter 2 verse 13. Chapter 2 verse 13, just a few verses down, he brings this full circle now, watch. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this. What are they thanking God for? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. So here he says this, when we came to you, we brought to you the gospel because the gospel was given to us by God. And how does Paul know it was given to him by God? Well, Paul had a unique experience, didn't he? <laughs> he was on his, road, on his way to Damascus on the road. Uh, he was going to persecute, imprison, and kill Christians. Jesus showed up and said, hey, Paul, what you up to? What do you think you're doing? Here I am. Wrong team, brother. Time to switch. Now, those are my words, but you can read the story in Scripture. Uh, but Paul went blind and had an encounter with Jesus. Remember, Paul did not have the New Testament. He did not have 2,000 years of history. He did not have the fulfilled prophecies that we know about. He did not have Luke's gospel yet. He did not have the book of Acts yet. He did not have any of the letters he had written yet. So God uniquely encounters him because he is going to walk into having to bring a lot of this to life and because he has such a distinct and unquestionable experience with Jesus giving him the gospel, he walks boldly into crazy places because he knows that this message is from God. So it is absolute for him. But because of this incredible attitude in him, when he brings that message, the people that receive it as from God have a unique experience as well. See, the Thessalonians, it is said, had such impact on the world around them because the world around them, it says it in chapter one there, said this, how are these idol worshipers now worshiping this God so absolutely in their display and in their conduct? How is this possible? And, and Paul says here, here's how it's possible. When the word of God came to you, you did not receive it merely as words of men, but you received it for what it really is, the word of God from the creator himself for you. The gospel was a God revelation to them. And what was the result? Therefore, he says, you are now imitators of Christ as are those in Judea. Their, their conduct, their life of faithfulness, the outward expression of inward belief, is the result of a moment where they came to realize, I am not reading a bunch of human thoughts. I am reading the very revelation of God. 
This is what I'm reading. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I heard. Paul will later on write to Timothy, who is actually with him on much of these travels. And when he writes to Timothy, uh, he writes these words about the word of God. If you want to turn to the book of Timothy, you're welcome to. I'm just going to read for a second. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to these words. Paul writes this. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture, all scripture, all of this, all of the word of God, all scripture is breathed out by God. There it is. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is not the thoughts of men. It is the words of God given to men to give to us. All is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for a proof, for a correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Wow. This is the reality of the word of God. This is what it is to us. So Paul says, the life of faithfulness is born largely when the word of God is understood as the word of God and not as something else. Here's what I think. Here's what I've experienced in my personal life as well as in the life of ministry I've uh, lived in in this cultural context. I think most of us here, if we're pressed to the wall and asked, do you believe that this is the word of God, would say yes. I, I do. I think most of you would. Some might uh, no, I don't know yet, I haven't, but most of you would say, yeah, this is, this is the word of God. If I asked you, do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is in fact from God, it is actually the story of God rescuing humanity, most of you would say, yes, I, 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 believe, that. I believe that. So I think intellectually, we all in this room are moving toward, and many of us are already in a place where we would say, this is the word of God, and the gospel is the gospel of God, given to us, revealed to us by God for us. But you know what? I don't think most of us, if any, perhaps some, I don't think most of us live that out experientially at all. I think we intellectually believe that, but when it comes to our daily experience, that is not how we live at all. We wake up in the morning and we are not informed by this extraordinary fact that the creator and sustainer has revealed all that needs to be known for us, for life, for freedom, for, for light. We are informed immediately by the immediate urgencies of the day which lead to the week, which lead to the month, which lead to the year, which lead to the life. So what we do is we step into the day and go, I must complete these things. I must accomplish these things. I must finish these things. Otherwise, the consequences will be this. And this is not where our extraordinary awe begins. This sits quietly in a space somewhere outside of what informs us every day. And we are informed for reason, are we not? This day matters. There's lots that are going to happen this day. And if I don't get these things done, get these things right, then all will fall apart in some way. We have a life. We are living. We must accomplish a certain amount of things so that we will be comfortable and happy in the future because if we are stuck here, this will be bad. We get children, some of us. And when we get children, then suddenly we feel this deep uh, yearning and pressure. If they go to the right schools in the right ways with the right teachers and the right sequences playing on the right sports teams, doing the right grades, then they'll get the right scholarships to the right places to get the right job, to live the right life, to, to, to ultimately be comfortable and happy. And we don't say that, us Christians, but we are driven by it moving in and out of our life to try and manage and try to 
accomplish the things before us. Now, the actual management and accomplishing of those things are not in of themselves bad. They are wise, but they are not our wisdom. They are our drive. There is a difference. They are not done because it's wise. They're done because we're driven. And so the Word of God is relegated to a space in our lives, I think, for most of us. For some, it's a space of devotion. It's a devotional book is what it is. It's where you run to on occasion, perhaps even daily, perhaps even daily, but on occasion, we run to it to extract momentary devotions to try to manage our soul as our soul is in turmoil in the horrid rush of our lives. And so we go to it for devotion, and we've even gotten so good at that that we don't actually even go this way anymore. We buy a book where someone has extracted 30, 365 neat verses for us on specific topics and given us a paragraph to read. Nothing wrong with that in of itself. I read devotionals, but that's what we've relegated it to. That's our experience of the Word of God. Or it's a book of inspiration for us. When you feel depressed, when you feel discombobulated, when you feel discouraged, when you feel angry, when you feel like you're stuck in a sin, we run to it, we Google verses on anger, and they pop up and we read them and we pick the one we like, we pull it out and we go, yes, I am saved by the inspiration of the Word of God. It is either a devotion or it is an inspiration to us. Sometimes Confucius pops in between the Bible verses and we pull that instead because it sounds even better. And Confucius has some good stuff or it's relegated as a handbook for life. You've heard that one, right? This is a handbook for life. It is your textbook. How many of you enjoyed your textbooks in school? I, I didn't, okay? So the textbook was always looming with an exam on the end of it, right? And that's how this feels. This is the handbook for life. Read it, know it, understand it, live by it. If you don't, don't worry, he'll punish you into it, right? We don't say that, but that's how it feels. This is the rule book. And if you break the rules, it's not going to go well for you. So stick to the rules. Know them well. The most important ones we can give you in a summary form. What this is not for most of us experientially, what this is not, are the very words of the Creator and Sustainer given to us to give us life, to give us light, to give us freedom, to give us connection and intimacy with the Creator, to help us know who He is how his heart beats, how he thinks and how he feels about you and I, what he's up to, how he's working, getting to know his character and his passion. That is not what this is for most of us. This is not the revelation of God. Jeremiah, uh, in his tenure on this planet, at one point was digging through the rubble uh, in the temple. The temple had been destroyed during his time. Jeremiah was the prophet that said to God, you tricked me into being a prophet because it, it was so horrid. His life was so horrid that he was mad at God for making him a prophet. He's like, you said this would be good. It wasn't good. It wasn't good, okay? So Jeremiah is digging through the rubble of the temple. The temple's been destroyed. All the artifacts inside the rubble are destroyed. The kings are just derailing because there's no, there's no scripture to guide the nation. And he's, he's digging through the rubble. And at a certain point as he's digging through, he pulls out of the rubble these documents and he opens them up and he realizes what he found. He has found the long lost scriptures of God. He has found the Word of God. He has found the Scriptures that were breathed by God. And he, he gets to this and he opens them up. And this is his response to that moment. It's found in Jeremiah 15, 16. Listen to what he says here. In Jeremiah 15, 16, he breathes these words out. Your words 
were found by me, he says. <laughs> Your words were found by me. And I ate them. Can you imagine him just sitting there on top of the rubble of the temple, just reading and reading, eating these words, just eating them as much as he can, absorbing them that had been long lost. And there's another one. There's another freedom. There's, a, there's another declaration. There's another wisdom. There's more for what God says to us. And he says this, and I did eat them. And your words became to me the joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Oh, have you ever experienced the word of God like that? Dare I say, probably not. See, it's like my kids, isn't it? See, if my kids actually believed that I, their father, have 40 years on them, 40 years on them, give or take, that I, their father, have seen things they have not yet seen, experienced things they have not yet experienced. I understand things they do not yet understand. I have vision they do not yet have. I have experiences they cannot imagine. And that my heart bleeds for them and their safety and their life and their freedom. That all that I want is what is good for them. If they believed that wholeheartedly about me and they knew what I, they just knew that I knew more than them, then, then my kids would hang on every word I say, would they not? They would come to me in the morning. Oh, Father, could you speak some more? <laughs> oh, we long to know what you know. We long to understand what you understand. Then at noon they would come back to me. Could we sit together? I know you're busy, but could we sit together? Could you speak some more? At night, as they go to bed, they would say, can we linger here just a little longer, just to hear a little more? If I said to them, don't cross that road. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Yeah. It's beautiful. I think I'm going to cry. Hold. Getting emotional. <laughs> if they believed, if they believed that they cannot know what I know, cannot see what I see, cannot experience what I yet have experienced, but that they know that I have and that's enough for them. There would be no shouting. There would be no consequences. There would be no threats. There would only be words and quiet spoken with kids lingering close so that they don't miss a single one of them, waiting to be directed. Yeah, now that's legitimately what would happen if they believed these things, not just intellectually, but experientially. This is how they would live. Instead of folded arms, glassy eyes, staring into the distance, mouth clenched, when the lecture's done, would you let me know so I can go? And I'm thinking to myself, someday you're gonna be 40 and you're gonna wish you remembered this conversation, but you're not gonna remember it because you ain't listening, right? That's, that would be my kids. But, but here's the thing. You know what I learned? That listening to people in authority over us is as hard for adults as it is for kids. It's no, no easier for us because when we listen to one who speaks to us, that knows more than we do, understands more than we do, sees more than we do, experienced more than we have, and, and has vision beyond our capacity, and he is good, and he loves us, and he's bent toward our freedom when he speaks, and it defies our logic, we argue. And often, we choose to run across the road anyway. And we wonder why the shouts and the threats and the consequences come. Not because he is punishing us, but because the only way to keep us 
free is to keep us bound when we do not trust His voice. When we believe here that the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, has bothered to share with us all of His heart and soul and mind in these words, there would be no end to our desire to explore them. There would be no obstacle too big for us to overcome. There would be no, I do not understand 1 Kings 13, I'm done. It sounded complicated. No. There would be, what do I do next? What tool do I use next? Who do I go to? Who do I, uh, help me understand. Because here in these pages are the very words of God. The gospel is the very word of God. And when it is spoken into me and when I understand it, I am free. I am free because God is trying to protect me as I, the Father, tries to protect my children from being arrested or killed by a truck. And so this is our journey. To, to leave this place, to, to beg the Spirit of God to enlighten us once again, remind us once again that these are His words for us, for our life, for our freedom, and to invite us into exploring them that you and I would go and explore them deeply again. Maybe you haven't in a while, maybe you never have, but that you would take that time to say, where, how do I begin to dig in? That it would not be relegated to a devotional inspiration book on a shelf that you pull off once in a while and Google verses on anger, but that you begin to dig into it. And as you do, that you look to eat what is given you. That in the morning you would linger, say more, God, say more. In the noontime, you would take that break, say more. You would wait all afternoon to be done with your chores so you can go linger with the Father again and hear more. That this would be our hearts. And if they are, what does Paul say? Because you believed that this was not the words of men, but the word of God. Now look, you are imitators of Christ. See, this is our faithfulness. It is not easy because it violates what informs us most. But it is simple. It is simple, not complicated. Let us go and linger with the Word. Let us explore it. Let us apply it. And let us share it with those around us. Quick parentheses. Don't be the parent, please, once you know the Word of God. I tell my kids all the time, they hate applying my words to their own life, but they love applying my words to the lives of their siblings. Yeah, love that. You know, oh, dad said, and you're doing it. Oh. And then they're the parent, and I often look at some little kid in my house, and I go, do you look like a parent? Deep voice, large body, high voice, small body, parent, child. Don't parent my other children. They are not yours to parent. They are mine to parent. Don't parent them. We Christians are famous for this. We go and extract stuff out of here, and then we go parent the world. <laughs> you can't live like that. Unbelievable. And I want to shout to all of you, stop parenting everybody, please. It's not your business. Apply it to your life, and then what I tell my kids all the time, if someone's living in danger, one of your siblings are going to do something dangerous and they're going to die, feel free to tell them, that's dangerous, you're going to die, you shouldn't do it. Then when you're done, if they're not listening, run to me. Run to me. They're doing something dangerous, tell them. And this should be our life, isn't it? We go and discover the Word of God. We apply it to our lives. And then when we find our brothers and sisters or those who don't know Jesus in danger, we just tell them gently, hey, just so you know, that 
It's pretty dangerous. You probably shouldn't do that. And if they go, Psh, then we go, that's okay. And we go up to the Holy Spirit and we say, would you mind <laughs> taking care of that? Because then they ain't listening to me. And, and if you start parenting them, I'm telling you, you better. The Holy Spirit should tap you and go, do you like, look like a parent? Because you small, high voice, me, universal giant, very, very deep voice. You've heard God's voice in the movies. It's very deep. <laughs> go and discover it, explore it, apply it, share it when it's going to bring life and freedom. And remember this, we started here. God's heart for you and I is this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that I have set you free. It is for freedom that I have set you free. God wants you free. God wants you full of life, full of light. And he wants you to come and linger with his words, defying your own logic by his, so that you will be free, full of life, full of light. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us, for this incredible letter you've allowed Paul to pen to the church in Thessalonica, inspired by you, Spirit of God, for us, so that we might be able to see clearly the beautiful invitation into being imprisoned by you and your word, violated by you and your word, by the gospel, so that we might be free, so that we might be pure, so that we might live faithfully, daily, because we are enamored by your word, convinced that it is in fact your word for us instead of just a devotional, just an inspirational book, just a manual, that it is in fact your word for us and that as we heed it, we hear from the one who knows all, understands all, experiences all, and whose heart bleeds for our safety and our freedom. Lead us there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.